she'd been waking up with a gun to her head. If, if that's the case, why didn't she get out? She knew what he was capable of, right? Well, I mean, she knew about she McCullough. She knew I, about... Yeah, she, she knew about everything. Well, not McCullough, but Lambert. She knew about Lambert. Well, the thing is, well, though... She knew about McCullough, too. Yeah, it happened before she disappeared. McCullough did. All of it did. I really wish we could nail down when his feeling changed or when he seemed to have learned that it wasn't those guys, but that it was Trudy. You don't remember any perceived... Um, no. I mean, David periodically would disappear for a few days at a time. But that, that wasn't anything that was really abnormal. He's always done that. He'd get in his airplane and fly away and you'd see him again a few days later. We, we raised Brandy from first grade or second grade on. And, um, and Trudy, Trudy tried to get her, uh, court-wise, and we um, went to Indianapolis and talked to a judge about it and was in a courtroom. I can't remember just when that was, but, and the judge had given her to us to raise. So that was then when Brandy was in the second grade, I think. So you and got custody of Brandy after? We basic, basically got custody of Brandy, um, more like guardianship. Yeah, that kind of thing. When Brandy was here and in in going to school, Trudy would call every morning before Brandy went to school. Every morning. It was Hmm. clockwise. I mean, you know, the phone would ring, you'd know it was Trudy. And uh, at that time of the morning, and then, I don't know for how long that went on, but then it stopped and there was no more Trudy. Did Munden ever get very far as far as finding out for sure if Steve ever had a drug connection or a drug was into trafficking or anything? Not that he could ever prove. Right. You know, there's all these stories and strange things. The guy at the, there's a little grass strip airport here in Greenfield. And, uh, you know, we talked to the, in fact, I think it was a fellow named Pope um, who ran the airfield and would talk about Steve flying in in the middle of the night and having a, a car would meet him and they would move something, you know, from the plane to the car, or from the car to the plane, and he would take back off again. Yeah. And, you know, there was there was talk that he he was dealing with Castro and, and that he had uh, connections. He could fly into Cuba mm-hmm. when nobody else could and all that. But, you know, eventually you sort of start to take everything Steve says with a grain of salt. Um, huh. So all kinds of circumstantial stuff, but right. nothing, nothing that you could ever prove. Yeah. You know, he was Steve was involved in some crooked shit. There's no doubt about yeah. that. Yeah. But the problem is, you know, uh, he was pretty good at it apparently, and and his people that he was connected to, whoever they may have been, weren't saying anything. I try to put myself in Brenda's shoes as the story of her mother going missing unfolds in front of her. Imagine her two days after she last saw her mom, when her brother and her father returned covered in mud, having been mysteriously gone for four hours with the John boat. Mom's been gone two days and you guys are going fishing? I wonder if it was then that she knew in her gut that her father had done something to her mother. 
Just the day before, he'd been sobbing in his office when she showed up for work. No car on the lot, no idea how he got there or how long he'd been before she arrived around 6 a.m. Then he leaves and comes back with a truckload of cash and tells her, if they come to get me, come get the money. He didn't explain and she didn't ask. Brenda knew when not to ask. Steve had taught them well. Was it that moment when she flashed back to Trudy shoving that gun in her bra the last time that she'd seen her? Or was it after Bill Reagan showed up, the guy, Danny, her ex-husband, described as scary and possibly a hitman? Why is he suddenly showing up after two days anyway, after her mother mysteriously disappears? None of us can know how long it was after that when her youngest brother confided in her that their older brother confessed to taking a wrapped body to the Oklawaha River and dumping it. Is that mom, her brother allegedly had asked Steve? No, Steve had told him, it's someone else. As if bodies being dumped are a common occurrence in the Snedeker family. It's my suspicion, and I want to be clear about the fact that it is just a suspicion, but I've come to it by reading between the lines in the police report and sorting through the puzzle pieces, lies, and redirection. But it is my suspicion, knowing what I know about Steve Snedeker, that he most likely lured his oldest son out on the boat that day under false pretenses. This was, after all, Steve's M.O. Tony Lambert, Chuck Smith, probably James Wilkes. And he tried to do it to Tony McCullough, but... That's what Steve Snedeker did. He treated everyone like prey, and he was never up front with anyone. So I suspect that however he got his son Joe out onto the boat that day, it wasn't because he'd been told ahead of time that they were headed out to dump his mom's body, or anyone else's. I'd like to say that we can be reasonably sure that the body was Trudy because the circumstances and timeline do line up, but... Steve Snedeker treated human lives like jizz-stained Kleenex. When he was done shooting his load into them, he tossed them aside without regard. So while it's certainly possible and, I think likely, that the body that was dumped was Trudy, it's also possible that the body was someone else, particularly since Bill Reagan apparently showed up in that same time frame. What's clear is that now Steve had his eldest son right where he wanted him, complicit. Joe told Lynn Wagner during an interview that he was sure his mother was dead and that was all he was going to say because he knew his father would kill or harm him and his family. So Lynn Wagner continued his investigation into the disappearance of Trudy Snedeker and Steve continued to avoid him. Wagner stopped at the Deland Airport where Steve rented hangar number five for his Piper Dakota airplane and he peeked inside he could see the aircraft was there, and so was a red Ford Taurus, a vehicle that a source had told him was used by Steve as a safe car. He learned that Wanda, Steve's new side piece, had been to that airplane hangar a week before, checking the door locks. This would have been right around that same time that Steve made the mysterious trip to his son's house in Indiana, while Brenda was secretly meeting with investigators in Ocala. It was also around this same time that Indiana State Police investigators had circled back to interview Tony McCullough in Indianapolis. And they learned a few more things, like 
how Steve was having problems with the EPA, and that's why he wanted to sell JNS oil. They learned that around August of 81, when Laura went missing, Steve and Buck Estes and someone else drove three vehicles from Greenfield to the business in Astor. Tony believed that he was to have been the third driver on that trip, and it was likely that it was that opportunity Steve had hoped to use to kill him. But while Steve was meeting with Tony Lambert in New Orleans, McCullough and his son Mike had gone to Houston, where Steve told them he owned an oil business that he wanted McCullough to manage. But when they arrived, they found that no such business existed. While he was there, he got a call from his wife telling him to come home, that something was wrong. And that's when he learned about Laura Morris. What probably kept McCullough alive was that he didn't go on that trip with Steve and Buck to drive the vehicles to Florida, and also that he had caught on to Steve, and Steve knew that, so he wouldn't be able to lure him away again. But I wonder if James Wilkes drove that third truck, and that's when he disappeared. It was somewhere around here in the investigation timeline that Brenda Simmons, formerly Chalice, was put in charge of North Florida Oil. It seems as though Steve was bribing her just as he had done with all of the kids in the past, holding money over their heads to get what he wanted. Investigators were also looking deeper into Bill Reagan, the dude who jacked the lawn equipment with Steve and Ezra Nunley in the late 60s, the one who escaped prison twice, but then mysteriously got out and had his record expunged, our alleged hitman. Wagner learned from the FBI that Bill Reagan had associates in the drug trafficking business. Surprise, surprise. Investigators next went and spoke with Trudy's side of the family to see what they had learned about her going missing. At the end of October in 1989, Bonnie Romans was interviewed in Old Town, Florida. She was the wife of Trudy's father, Lawrence Romans, or referred to as Old Man Romans, as Dave Scott mentioned. She said Trudy used to visit her father about once a month and call him about twice a week to check in. Those calls and visits stopping, that's what raised the red flags with them. The last time Old Man Romans saw his daughter was on January 19, 1986, when he was in the hospital after surgery. Police also interviewed Trudy's brother, Buddy, not to be confused with her son, Bud, and Buddy told them that he had talked to Steve in November of 1986, after Trudy went missing, and Steve told him that Trudy was living with a black man named Oliver. Steve also gave a last name, but I'm not going to share that because Oliver is an actual human, a real person, but it turns out that the whole story about poor Oliver was another hunk of made-up crap from the mind of Steve Snedeker. Oliver had been a cook at a hotel in Tallahassee, Florida, but by the time police caught up with him, he worked in Georgia at another hotel. The poor guy didn't even know anyone named Snedeker until the GBI officer sauntered up to his door to question him about a missing woman. Buddy said Steve had showed up in Chillicothe at Trudy's mom's house and told her that he was no longer her son-in-law because Trudy had left him and they were divorced. So in December of 1986, Buddy traveled to Astor, and he spoke with Brenda and her brother Joe, trying to find out what they knew. They told him that Steve and Trudy had had problems throughout the years, and it wasn't unusual for Trudy to be gone for long periods of time. Whether that's true or not, it's hard to tell, 
because, first, if Steve Snedeker was my husband, I would want to be gone a lot too. But, second, it's clear that all of Steve's kids lied for him and about him all the time, at his behest and probably sometimes for self-protection. Having gone through all the Florida documents, I feel as though there was a period of time that they were telling people the stories that Steve told them to tell and downplaying Trudy's disappearance. I have no doubt that that was at his behest. But he told investigators that Brenda and Joe told him that pictures of Trudy had been found on bathroom walls at local restaurants and they were of Trudy in, quote, sexual activity of a pornographic nature. When Trudy's brother asked them if they had kept the pictures, they said, no, we tore them down. I don't think I am going too far out on a limb here to suggest that those pictures never existed. But why would Steve's kids tell their uncle that they did? I have no reason to doubt that's what they told Trudy's brother. I certainly believe Buddy's word over theirs. Those kids were raised by Steve and Trudy Snedeker, so of course it's not a shock, or it shouldn't be, to see them lying to cover things up just like their parents did. I do tend to think that this specific instance was out of self-preservation. The Snedeker kids were steeped from a young age in a strong tea of control, lies, and deceit. It's all they knew. They lived under assumed names as kids, for God's sakes. They had controlling, manipulative, volatile parents. And Steve was always there, hovering, making sure they all towed the line. About those pictures, Buddy told police, quote, I came away from that, and this is just conjecture on my part, but I can't really be sure there was any pictures. Because, you know, you tried to pin them down, and, and finally it came to a point where Joe was the only one who would admit to seeing the pictures. It appears that Buddy was starting to learn that, with the Snedegers, sussing out the truth amid all the lies was like trying to pull gum out of a toddler's hair. He was shocked to learn that none of the family had even reported Trudy missing. And during this visit, Steve apparently tried dodging his brother-in-law, too much of a coward to face him. By phone, Steve told him some cockamamie story about seeing Trudy when he was riding a motorcycle on the freeway at an exit. He said he tried to chase the vehicle down, but it got away from him. While in town, Buddy visited the county clerk's office, trying to pin down whether Steve and Trudy were actually divorced. The clerk showed him a copy of the divorce decree, and it said that they had been divorced three years earlier in 1983. He also described seeing a deposition related to the divorce. It said the Snedegers had marital problems since Laura's death, and they couldn't get along yet they continued to live in the same house for years and run the business together. The other thing in the deposition that jumped out at him was that there was no division of assets, no mention of assets at all. So armed with this new information, Buddy walks into North Florida Oil the next day, bent on cornering Steve, who must not have known he was coming because he was none too happy about Buddy showing up. Steve refused to talk to him there, he made Buddy follow him to a local restaurant. He said he had a lady with him at the time, probably Wanda, but she was never introduced, and Steve left her in the car. Steve became hostile immediately. Buddy took notes on a placemat, black man named Oliver, 
cook at the Tallahassee Hotel. Trudy was driving a light blue Ford Topaz. Black man drove a green Torino with a disabled veteran tag on it. Steve even gave Buddy an address in Tallahassee and told him how to get there. Come on. Ran off with a black guy, huh? The black guy did it. It's the most pathetic excuse trope there is. I wish Trudy had run off with a random black guy instead of succumb to whatever horrors her miserable excuse for a husband likely inflicted upon her because she would probably be alive and well today if she had. Anyway, poor Buddy goes down to where Steve says this random black guy lives, only to find no such address. The street itself did exist, in a pretty bad part of town, by the way. So Buddy sits down there in his car, in that seedy section of town, at different times of the night and day, watching, hoping that he would spot his sister. But I'm sure something inside him knew that Trudy wouldn't be roaming around those streets. But he finally goes back to his hotel and calls the place Steve told him the man worked, and they had never heard of the man or of Trudy. So then he calls Steve to tell him he couldn't find her. And what does Steve Snedeker say? You're too stupid to find her. Maybe it will surprise you guys, or maybe it won't. But after all the unbelievable and horrible crap I had already uncovered related to Steve Snedeker in the police files and the stuff that I heard in interviews. This was the first time I had a visceral reaction. I could have punched that piece of shit right in the throat for saying that to Trudy's brother. You're too stupid to find her. This poor guy is riding all around an unfamiliar town looking for his sister and the gall of that son of a bitch to say something like that. What an utter waste of oxygen. Steve Snedeker was. Truly, I feel deeply sorry for anyone who was raised by or around that man. And there was just something about Buddy, you know? He took all these notes, lots of them. He wrote everything down, everything that he had heard and he had seen since he realized that his sister had gone missing, spoke to everyone he could. And that day when police interviewed him, He's handing over all these restaurant placemats and dog-eared pieces of scrap paper that he scrawled all over, and the desperation in that is just gutting to me. My whole heart broke for him when I read that, this man that I didn't even know. He had notes about how he talked to Tree's kids, and they didn't seem surprised when he asked them if they thought Steve did something to Trudy. Joe said, Well, if he did it, he'll rot in hell. Can't you find out if he did it? Buddy asked him. Joe replied, What am I supposed to do? Go beat it out of him? I feel for the Snedeker kids, I really do. Especially knowing what Steve was capable of. He was not a good parent. He did not provide a healthy, stable upbringing. He fucked those kids up good. And at this point, it sounds like they knew, or at least they believed, that Steve was probably responsible for the men that had gone missing, Tony Lambert and Chuck Smith. And now their mom's gone? Of course they would assume that they were disposable too. Why wouldn't they? I can't fault them for being scared or for clamming up. They were protecting their families. But they were telling Buddy that Trudy had run off again. They were helping to perpetuate that story. I'm sure it's what Steve told them to say, and they knew what would happen if they didn't. Their father had running buddies like Bill Reagan, 
who authorities had once called one of the most dangerous prisoners they ever had in their penal system. The interview with Trudy's brother is full of these heartbreaking moments. Investigators were trying to ascertain when the idea of foul play had set in, as far as family discussions, and Buddy said this. It wasn't until some time later that foul play was talked about by police. Up until that time, I'm trying to find her. I have every reason to believe she's still alive at that time. And I'm not sure she's not alive now. I have no... Is she alive? Even reading it with the multiple ellipses that indicate pauses, a lump appears in my throat because it's clear the investigators are sitting across from this man who wants to hear them say something that they're not going to be able to say. What a crappy day on the job that must have been. We have no reason. We've contacted no one, nor do we have any information that she's been seen or heard from since the disappearance in approximately September of 86. I wish we had better news for you, but we just don't. If she were alive, the investigator asked, would she not have called you or her mother? Oh, yeah, everyone. See, one of the reasons, one of the things that began to slowly sink into us that she's gone, that she's dead, would be that she was religious in her attentions to my mother and to her granddaughter, Laura's little girl, Brandy. I'm not sure why they were stating September of 1986 as the last time Trudy was seen or heard from, because family puts it closer to July, but... Interestingly, I found a witnessed document signed by both Steve and Trudy in October of 1986, which she clearly could not have signed if she was already gone. It's for the property where Brenda and Danny lived on Bobcat Road in Astor, and it's being signed over to Brenda. Perhaps more bribery. But I wonder who forged Trudy's signature. There's at least a hint of a clue there. It's dated October 2, 1986, One of the witnesses on the document is a woman named Carol Barngrover, who is married to a man named Rod Barngrover, a friend of Steve Snedeker. Steve had even given him a chair after Trudy went missing that was at one point perhaps an item Steve was trying to get rid of for nefarious reasons. Police would later test it and find nothing. I tried to contact the Barngrovers about this document that Trudy could not have signed, but that Carol Barngrover apparently witnessed but I never got a response. Buddy described to investigators about how after his father's funeral in November of 87, he stayed at the same hotel as Brenda and Danny, and they all talked. They were very, very scared at that time, according to Buddy. They firmly believed that Steve had killed Trudy. The problem is, none of them could figure out why. Why would Steve kill Trudy? What was the motive? Brenda told Buddy about the last time that she saw her mother, and the thing that stood out to him was that they were supposedly going out dancing, but they got into an old van, which seemed strange to him because they owned a Mercedes and a new Lincoln, both of which would be far better vehicles to go out in. Buddy said, And that was, you know, the reason why she thought maybe her father was responsible or knew what happened to her. Not necessarily that he might have done something to her, but 
he knew something, you know? That somebody else had done something and he, for fear of some reason, we all have all kinds of theories on that, but he couldn't say. And uh, I always, well, my thing was always to try to tie Laura's murder with Gertrude's disappearance. Have you been able to do it? The investigator asked, referring to linking Laura's murder with Gertrude's disappearance. I haven't. I haven't been able to tie them together, no. Nothing that would have any, that there isn't some flaw someplace, you know, that it can't be, you know. It would just go against human nature or something, you know. Because I can't reach a point where I can believe that a Christian would kill their own wife or their daughter or, which I have heard there's been some accusations that she killed Laura. Well, I can't buy that. I know Gertrude too well for that. It just doesn't, I, I can't accept it. I can't even accept that Steve killed Gertrude for several reasons. Not only were they too close, but I imagine in my opinion, Steve might have been in more danger from her than she was from him. She might have kicked the hell out of him, you know? But he told them that Trudy could take care of herself. He said all of them carried guns. There was a lot of fear among all of them, and they were never without guns. You don't do that unless you have some idea someone's going after you. Yet it was always some mysterious phantom somewhere that might get him. Like the boogeyman, you know. I don't know whether it was fear without basis or not. Buddy was surprised that Brenda was, by the time that he spoke to investigators, back in Florida running Steve's business. He couldn't, for the life of him, understand how someone as scared as she appeared to have been would have gone back there after getting out. She was in such a fear that she was scratching herself at my father's funeral. She was, you know, constant. You know how a person, you know, with nerves or something like that, they're always doing this, they're just rubbing themselves raw. She had pulled her hair out and everything. She was so worried about it. And now to find out she's back there? What's changed that would cause her to go down there? Would it be a financial thing? The investigator asked. I'm guessing that was a rhetorical question. Why else would she be there? Buddy ended his interview with this. The reason he had a hard time believing that Trudy was dead for so long was that none of her kids were grieving her. He had assumed that they thought she was alive. None of them seemed sad that Trudy was gone. They seemed scared, but he saw no grief. None. The absence of grief really strikes me. Buddy said. Steve gets sick, Steve dies. Um, what happened to all his, like, was there a will? What happened to all the, his money? Where did it go? I have no idea. I know he used to carry, like, half a million dollars around the trunk of his car. This supposedly disappeared. I uh, know he, he told Lynn Wagner that he would write everything down. He was dying of cancer at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, he knew he was on his way out. Said he'd write everything down and Lynn Wagner would know the truth. And people would have closure. But he uh, never did. Oh, we don't know that. I honestly, honestly, I believe he did do that. And, and I think that's some of the stuff that was burned up on the, behind the house on Keith Street. At the end of 1989, an investigative subpoena was issued and Steve Snedeker was to appear before a grand jury at 10 a.m. on January 19, 1990. Before that subpoena could be served, 
Steve was admitted to Halifax Hospital in Daytona, Florida. The day after he was to appear before the grand jury, Steve Snedeker died. Stay tuned. 